And so often there's a lot of focus on the tooling, data platform tooling that can make data use sufficient at scale. But you know, in our experience, this has to be driven by also the effective application of data to solve business problems. Uh, and that's not just a technology problem. From Toro Cloud, this is the Coding Over Cocktails podcast, a free pool of thoughts, ideas, and advice from IT experts, innovators, and thought leaders, exploring the world of digital transformation, APIs, microservices, cloud adoption, and more. Welcome to episode 77 of Coding Over Cocktails. My name is David Brown. Our guest for today is an innovative technology leader with over 20 years experience leading the strategic and technical delivery of data and AI, delivery strategy and change solutions. He combines diverse experience delivering complex technology solutions with his passion for customer outcomes to develop high-performing teams capable of solving complex client problems. He is currently a Director of Data and AI Practice at ThoughtWorks Australia and oversees all facets of developing data and AI capabilities and service offerings. Joining us for a round of cocktails today is David Coles. Hi, David. Great to have you on the show. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the intro. Absolutely, our pleasure. Can you run us through your role at ThoughtWorks to get us started? Uh, yeah, sure. The, the uh, you provided a, a good overview uh, there, and uh, while I uh, described overseeing all aspects of uh, data and AI capability, I think that as our team has grown, uh, my role has become more about planting seeds and uh, and pruning and what what germinates from them. Uh, the, the working with the uh, the specialists in our team across uh, across the range of services we provide. So if I think about the, the dimensions of the role, it's um, partly one of the dimensions is uh, the different different services that we provide uh, from data strategy uh, through data engineering and platform development, uh, data governance and, and data mesh, um, intelligent products and AI solutions. Uh, and so one dimension of the role is uh, being across uh, what, what we do in those different services and how those services complement one another and also complement uh, the broader offerings of ThoughtWorks as a as a digital delivery and advisory consultancy. Interesting. I mean, we've had a number of guests from ThoughtWorks and, you know, when you say specialists, you guys really are and you tend to be thought leaders in a number of spaces. Uh, I'd be interested to get your perspective. You're another fellow Australian based in Melbourne in Australia. Uh, I'd be interested to get your perspective of uh, the Australian landscape versus the international landscape. How are we doing here as Australian companies in terms of our embracing digital transformation initiatives and data initiatives and AI? It's a, it's a great question, and it's uh, you know one that um, comes up as as we uh, collaborate globally within ThoughtWorks around our data and AI services. What we do find is that the market in Australia is is a bit different um, in terms of uh, the, the composition of uh, of our economy. And industries, uh, compared to, say, the other global North markets, uh, like North America and Europe. Um, but we find as much innovation in Australia, um, as in those other markets. And so, uh, you know, we see, we see a lot of innovation in our digital native, uh, homegrown exports, uh, our Atlassians, NYOB, Zeros, REA group, organizations that we work with. Uh, those organizations are, are leading the way in um, data engineering and ML practices as, as much as other organizations globally. However, with a, with a different industry focus here. 
Interesting. That's good to hear. Well, we talk about data capabilities within organizations. It's a phrase you've used yourself. What are you encompassing by data capabilities? It sounds very broad. It, it is very broad indeed. And I think um, it comes down to probably effective use of data to achieve an organization's objectives, being able to do that efficiently as well at scale so as to make it economically and also to be able to do that safely. So understand safety aspects of applications, but also safety aspects of handling data. Um, and so I think that all of those come together to create uh, an organizational capability to work with data. Uh, and if you're looking at developing that capability, then you're looking at, at developing uh, those axes together. And so often there's a lot of focus on the on the tooling, data platform tooling that can make data use efficient at scale. But you know, in our experience, this has to be driven by also the effective application of data to solve business problems. Uh, and that's not just a technology problem. Uh, that's uh, people and process uh, and organisational design and culture um, problem to address uh, as much as a technology. We've talked about that extensively, the cultural aspect of these initiatives as well. And I know you uh, like to embrace a lot of uh, machine learning and AI in your data initiatives as well, data capabilities. So we are, we are going to talk about that. But before we get into that, I'd like to talk to you about data mesh. You have recently been talking a lot about data mesh in fact, you know, we've, we've talked on this podcast about data mesh and had some leading experts on what a data mesh is. So we don't need to go too much into what a data mesh is, but I would be interested in getting your perspective about how it's being used. What are some of the practical applications of data mesh? What, what we're finding in, towards that um, uh, description of uh, organisational data capability is that being able to you know, respond, build effective data solutions, but also in a timely manner uh, is, is a key driver for organisations looking to, to pick up data mesh. So often they have some of the, uh, often they, you know, they have large data sources internally. Uh, they have uh, some technology to manage it, but when it comes to bringing all of those um, capabilities to bear to deliver new data initiatives in short timeframes, uh, you know, we're finding organizations uh, limited by the, their existing infrastructure, and that's where they're, they're looking towards data mesh to support those use cases. When you say they're limited by the infrastructure, what sort of limitations are you referring to? You know, in, in the digital world, um, I think, you know, we've seen over the last decade, um, the problem of rapidly bringing digital products to market, um, more or less a solved problem now. Uh, you know, we have, um, we have a range of approaches, uh, to identify, uh, customer needs, uh, to rapidly test uh, and refine products. And, uh, you know, we have con uh, continuous delivery practices and, and architectures that support, uh, rapid evolution and scale. Uh, but in the data world, we're often coupled to uh, more legacy centralized data infrastructure that makes it hard to autonomous for, for or teams to autonomously make uh, the, the small changes they need to um, uh, with short feedback cycles uh, to deliver uh, data products or digital products um, that are driven by data features. So I'd, I'd like you to, if you could, give me a, like a practical example. I've, I've read, for example, you've talked about the airline industry as, as one where they have these enormous data silos and some, some of the practical benefits of retaining those close to the owners of those data silos and how the data mesh can overcome some of those challenges. Can you say, can you run me through some of that practical implementation? Yeah, so often um, uh, with a, a centralised data program um, or, or data infrastructure, there, there are multiple hops uh, 
uh, for a, a, a team to go through uh, to to be able to deliver a piece of functionality. Um, the first first hop and, and each of those brings some delay, um, and so the first hop might even be identifying who uh, who owns the data internally and who can authorize its use for another purpose. Uh, and you know that uh, that that can uh, that can take weeks or months, uh, which you know is a, the type of delay that can severely compromise uh, product development activities. Uh, and then w- even when the data is um, identified, then there might be an additional process of building the pipelines uh, to get the data from from A to B uh, and so it, it, you know that, that that can add add more delay into the process um, then there's a then uh, when the, the data is available in an environment to build a product off it uh, then often there's a there's a, another team involved to actually uh, build algorithms and serve serve the data into a consuming application. In that paradigm, we see we see delays at, at every step of the way, and uh, silos in the uh, airline industry would would be an example of that. Um, the alternative is, and it's a it's a gradual transition uh, to to bring those data sets to bring ownership and autonomy over over how those are published closer to the source uh, to uh, be able to rapidly validate uh, the consumers are getting value from the data uh, and and to be able to do that in a in a decentralized way to build uh, governance affordances uh, into data products and into the infrastructure as well and so these are things like you know uh, does it um, does it publish uh, does it publish the information that consumers need to use uh, can we See how it, can we see its consumption patterns? Uh, does it conform to standards uh, within the organisation? And inevitably, in a decentralised world, there'll be uh, competing objectives as well. So then, how do we how do we work through those competing objectives and, and resolve those? And is it data mesh versus data warehouse, or is it horses for courses where both architectures suit different solve or suit different problems? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's it, it, it is horses for courses to an extent. I think that we see that uh, like a, a data warehouse might become a part of a of a data mesh. So it might be a, a solution for a particular domain uh, where uh, you know th- there is a need for uh, that type of data modelling uh, that, that a data warehouse supports. Uh, but but uh, it, it also depends a bit on the size of the organisation as well. So smaller organisations. Uh, might and organizations that are building their digital maturity uh, might find that uh, you know the the overhead of of running a a data mesh doesn't um, provide the additional uh, organizational agility that they're looking for but i think in terms of that digital maturity i think the tooling will improve over time and we'll see it uh, we'll see it becoming easier and easier to stand up. It reminds me of the arguments uh, for and against monolithic architectures versus microservices. Uh, when you're starting out, a monolithic architecture is actually easier and, and perfectly viable architecture. It's, but when you get to scale, perhaps a microservices architecture can offer you the benefits when you're when you're at that stage. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of parallels um, in that journey. Well, let's talk about AI. So uh, I know you are very interested in AI uh, and the use of data and creating product opportunities out of AI. Um, it, now, it's traditionally been used for analysing historical data to improve a customer experience. But in the last few years, you've been promoting this concept of using AI for a business planning or product development. 
uh, concept. Uh, these areas have normally been the domain of a business manager or someone with expertise or accumulated knowledge with, in regards to that product knowledge or business knowledge to make those uh, strategic decisions. So they're using their accumulated knowledge plus some intuition about the market and the customer expectations. How is AI changing this approach? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a great area to to address, um, especially currently as uh, you know, uh, business conditions are so dynamic. That question of business strategy and, and product development, um, you know, that it has been addressed differently in different industries over time. And um, prior to ThoughtWorks, I worked in the um, automotive uh, design space where, uh, you know, with a, a new vehicle design, it was possible to generate thousands of variants, simulate their um, uh, uh, their handling, their aerodynamics, uh, and their crash performance, all inside a computer, all in a matter of days, to get very early feedback on on product performance and and what good product designs might look like. And so, you know, that that sort of virtual prototyping approach has has been around in in some industries for decades. Uh, but what we're seeing uh, with now uh, more powerful, more flexible. AI tools, a greater ecosystem um, of you know, open source solutions and data uh, means that that sort of approach to product development uh, and, and business strategy as well can be applied uh, in a much wider uh, range of circumstances that almost any business can take advantage of. Um, and so we've seen we've seen it used in designing call center systems, uh, in optimizing airport operations, in uh, even even uh, developing new blends of whiskey. Uh, so these are all opportunities to to apply and and sustainable supply chains as well. So these are all opportunities to apply AI techniques uh, in product development of business strategy. And I think the key the key of uh, using them is, is not to outsource all the all the design and decisioning to AIs, but it's to it's to do it in a um, in a collaborative fashion uh, with the the human expertise. So we don't lose the human expertise; uh, we just formalise it. What we see is then using AI techniques allows us to explore more designs or more possible futures uh, that, that we wouldn't have considered otherwise. But it also gives us that fast feedback loop potentially as in the as in the vehicle design. So we can test a lot more designs than we would have otherwise. So obviously there's going to be uh, lots of inputs of data to this process. So if you're designing a, a whiskey using AI, what would be the inputs in that process? So it's yeah, it's basically all the decisions that, that go into making a, a product are in scope uh, for this type of approach. But um, as you as you work through iteratively, uh, you know you'll you'll pick thin slices uh, and and identify the areas where you can have the most impact on the decision making process. But but for a, a whiskey example, it could be um, sourcing all the raw ingredients, um, where, where those ingredients are sourced from, uh, can be all of the uh, the, the brewing and, and distillation and aging processes as well, uh, you know, the, the time, um, the, the process parameters, pressure and temperature and um, it, everything that, that goes into uh, actually producing uh, the, the, the final product can have an impact on um, its its performance uh, in, in the market. And the performance uh, in this case comes down to taste. Uh, and so we were able to establish a relationship between some of these uh, design parameters and 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 the expected taste uh, or the the dimensions of the of the taste the tasting notes of the of the whiskey 
and so then provide a, a, a model um, uh, which could generate uh, new uh, inputs and even even to the degree of the, I mean choosing between uh, single single malt whiskies to create a blend um, uh, with appropriate tasting uh, tasting properties and then and then uh, provide that tooling to the the master distillers. Uh, who are um, ultimately responsible for uh, producing a, a product that they think the market is going to enjoy? So all, all of those, uh, yeah, all of those inputs can be can be brought together and uh, and presented to the, the uh, human experts responsible for these product design decisions. It's a really interesting uh, use case. I, I don't, I'm interested to hear about something about that call center example you're talking about as well. But I'm just interested with. Developing whiskey using AI, and you mentioned a number of the inputs such as ingredients and distillery methods and presumably customer preference in terms of taste. What kind of algorithm are you using for that? Are you sourcing one which is off the shelf? Are you writing one from scratch? Where do you start? (laughs) In this case, a a general uh, set of techniques, a a generative adversarial um, network was was applied in this case. Uh, But uh, there... Uh, there are, um, yeah, depending on the, the product and depending on how, how you want to assess it, um, there are a range of different techniques you might use uh, for the call center example, for example. Um, uh, that was uh, using a, an agent-based simulation. So each caller um, was uh, modeled as an individual agent who had some patience to wait on hold, who had some reason that they were calling um, and who had some tolerance for being transferred from agent to agent until their query was resolved, and, and as a result, generated an NPS uh, uh, score for that interaction. Uh, and similarly, on the on the uh, organisational side, there were agents representing the the, the real contact centre agents who had similar behaviours that could be simulated. Add to that, um, the, add to that actual. A model of the pr- the planned production systems that would determine uh, which calls were sent to which queues, serviced by which agents, uh, and then you have a, 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 a in this case actually a custom simulation model based on custom agent behaviours and custom um, routing systems, uh, and and then that's uh, that's uh, a model that can be run with different parameters. Uh, we can establish the the trade off between cost to service uh, and uh, customer satisfaction. Uh, with various designs. Mm. Uh, well, that customer service example, the call centre example, you're talking about a lot of historical data being used to to create those models. Uh, to train a machine learning algorithm, you typically have a good data set of historical data. Now, some organisations won't have that data. Many will have historical data which they can feed into this uh, algorithm. What are the options if you don't have an existing data set? Is, is AI still an option for your business? Uh, yes, I would say it, it absolutely is. And um, uh, we, yeah, we really encourage people not to be constrained by the existence of historical data sets. What we do find is that even having a historical data set isn't a guarantee of success. Uh, so there may be uh, missing data, there may be quality problems, uh, there may be a lot of feature engineering required uh, to, uh, to get a historical data set uh, into um, the shape that's required for supervised machine learning. Um, there may be biases in the historical data, um, including it may no, may no longer be relevant, especially 
you know, we've seen over the last three years with COVID changing um, consumer behaviour again and again, um, old data set, historical data has become less relevant in making predictions. And also we find that, you know, once you start running a solution, uh, the data will be evolving over time as well. So we always encourage people to think in terms of an ongoing curation process for a data set. Uh, rather than you get starting from mining an existing uh, vein or resource of, of historical data, uh, but it's it's a process that will be actively ongoing and evolving. So, what is that curation process? You're talking about uh, developing data through experimentation. Or... Yeah, yeah. So, um, and and, and uh, depend, yeah, d- depending on the on the application as well. So. Uh, or, or it might be a process of starting to collect uh, get, collect data in a form that that you want to be able to use it and that's amenable. Uh, in this case, you might consider that if there's a system that um, users are interacting with uh, that, that you wish to be able to add some AI capability or machine learning features to and start thinking about how those users can provide implicit or explicit guidance as to the as to the right decisions uh, to be made. So that kind of labeling interface. Uh, there's a range of ways to um, uh, to and so we can we can start, for instance, a, a recommendation system without uh, without any historical data. If we use a reinforcement learning approach, uh, where the solution will run its own experiments and, and learns learn what works and what doesn't work. So I think some people wouldn't be familiar with that term, the reinforcement learning. Run me through that. Uh, so it's a, it's a process. Uh, there are, I guess, sometimes we describe three major classes of uh, machine learning solutions, and those are unsupervised or, or self-supervised learning, which uh, allows us to identify clusters. For instance, it might be used in segmenting a customer base behaviorally to identify uh, different patterns of behavior uh, that, that might identify behavioral segments. Uh, the second is uh, supervised learning, which is what a lot of people think of uh, when they think of machine learning, which is we provide a, a labeled set of examples of, of what good looks like. So this transaction is fraud, this transaction is not fraud, this customer is likely to churn, this customer is not likely to churn. And then, then a model can can learn how to predict that those labels or, or other features uh, on on new data that wasn't part of the training set, uh, and then the third the third paradigm is called reinforcement learning, and in that uh, model we treat uh, the system as as an agent that tries to figure out how to get the best reward in an environment, um, and so the the agent has to run some experiments and see see what happens as a result, and so we might have a reinforcement uh, learning agent. Uh, say we have a video streaming service and uh, there's a preview for um, each piece of media. Uh, the reinforcement learning agent might have half a dozen different choices for a preview image for each uh, piece of media. Uh, and then it would uh, uh, learn based on some uh, attributes of the user, uh, what they're most likely to respond to. And over time, uh, through running through through trialing different preview images, uh, it would uh, eventually select the one that leads to the highest engagement or uh, in the content. Basically, uh, creating that labeling process on the fly. So as the, on the yeah, occurs, yeah, it's a good way to think about it. Okay, so interesting. There's it's so much opportunity. I think that is this uh, in in terms of product development and business planning through AI. Is this something that is you see occurring a lot in organizations or is this still 
in its infancy where you're educating organisations on this? I think, yeah, I think um, there are pockets um, where uh, it's uh, where uh, you know, the maturity is quite high, and these these techniques are being explored. But um, across the, the breadth of organisations, there are still a lot of opportunities uh, to to adopt these techniques. Uh, ThoughtWorks recently published a, a playbook called the Modern Data Engineering Playbook. Uh, it aims to help deliver greater value to businesses by pursuing data engineering projects, no matter the industry. Can you give us a, a run through of the themes in the Modern Engineering Playbook? Uh, yeah, it's um, about uh, it's a technology agnostic approach to data engineering. So we focus on product product management for data delivery practices, technical practices. Uh, and, and team organization uh, for data initiatives. Uh, and we wanted to structure it this way because uh, they're in our client work, uh, we work with a range of technology stacks, uh, but we find consistent practices uh, in, in how we deliver uh, to be effective uh, regardless of the technology stack. Makes sense. Uh, and so, yeah. It's Is a, the playbook available uh, to everyone or it's, this is a, a exclusively available to ThoughtWorks clients? No, it's, it's available to everyone. It's um, uh, published on our website currently, uh, and um, we've uh, released the first five or seven chapters, uh, and there are two more, the, the final two coming uh, as fast followers. Lots of different authors and a collaborative review process. So it really was bringing uh, the thinking from different people and, and different uh, engagements together into a playbook. It seems quite comprehensive. I've got it open in front of me right now, so I'll just run through those. Uh, seven chapters. You've got treating data as a product, which is already published. Data engineering practices, also published. Getting the most value from your team. Data delivery principles. And then the ones coming, uh, and data quality, uh, all published. The ones coming soon is project architecture and security and privacy. I would also like to ask you about uh, ethical and societal implications of the growth of big data, which has been a big driver of machine learning practices and AI, uh, and the uh, practical use cases of AI. We've seen certain things like the terminology used, but in China they have this social record or social status, uh, which is you know, basically analysing big data and, uh, and applying it through uh, algorithms. Uh, what are some of the concerns and implications of this data? I know the also the um, data privacy legislation in the EU is also has some potential implications on on the uh, on how you can use AI and what and you have to explicitly advise people which how you, how their data is being used as well. Yes, uh, the um, uh, yeah, I, th- I think there are a lot of um, ethical implications uh, of, of using data. Uh, and you know they they should be uh, front of mind for organisations, uh, and this is kind of the the safe element of, of building data capability because uh, you know, and and you can think through think through different levels or um, different layers uh, if it helps as well. And so, but I think that the general theme is that yeah, poor poorly governed automated decision making. It can disproportionately affect vulnerable people, um, and they are least able to uh, redress uh, the impacts of um, uh, of uh, that uh, automated decision making. Um, and so, if we you know keep keep that frame in mind, we can look at it from different levels. The kind of yeah, the, the structural societal 
level of, you know, do we want to make these decisions uh, with automated systems? Uh, and so, yeah, that leads into the, the questions of you know, ubiquitous surveillance. Is, is that something that we want to accept as a society? You know, how do we, how do we protect workers um, in an environment where, uh, you know, that uh, a lot of their agency might be controlled by automated decision making as well as as a first layer and then we yeah we kind of come to the the question of data security and privacy uh, as as you said you know if if uh, an organization is a custodian of its customers data um or or other other people's data uh, you know how, how are they a responsible custodian um how do they ensure that they're taking the right steps to uh, preserve the security and, and privacy of that data and it's not just an ethical consideration either, right? There are legal implications such as GDPR and the EU and the like, which is actually expanding in scope to cover these types of things. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the, uh, the legal implications are almost a, a formalised uh, form of ethics. Uh, so they provide really clear guidance about how you avoid doing harm uh, to the uh, the stakeholders with data. Um, and then, then, then we can go beyond that to, uh, the, the ethics of algorithmic decision making. So, you know, we have the, uh, you know, we, we considered what decisions we think we should be making. If we considered the, um, man- the handling of the data, um, then, you know, we've got concerns around garbage in, garbage out, uh, with algorithmic decision making. We've got concerns around historical biases being reflected, um, being perpetuated and even being exacerbated. Um, by algorithmic decision making. Um, and then, then we've actually got the case that algorithms fail as well. So they're, uh, you know, they're, they're not perfect. Um, at scale, you know, those failures may be, um, uh, not insignificant. So what role or who within an organization should be responsible for that ethical oversight? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I think as, you know, as technologists, I think there's, uh, an, an element of all of us being you know, responsible technologists uh, and understanding um, the impact of our actions. Uh, you know, I, I think there's, uh, yeah, there's a role for government regulation and frameworks uh, as well. Uh, and then uh, there's a role for uh, tools and, and processes to support us uh, in those objectives. So bias testing tools um, and, and so on. Uh, but I think it's, um, Throughout the, yeah, we see it as, uh, like a, a process that gets built in or an activity that's built in throughout the delivery cycle. Uh, so it's not necessarily a, a sandwich, uh, activity of upfront, you know, we, but there's, uh, uh, we, you know, we set the ethical path. Um, and then we, we check, we check for compliance at the end of a project, but it, it's an ongoing process. And so, um, everyone involved in delivery, uh, would, would have a role to play in that and, you know, research and, and our experience shows that uh, diverse teams have uh, better outcomes in that regard as well. They're able to consider more scenarios. We've talked about that on our podcast, actually. It's quite interesting how the uh, benefits of diversity in that regard. Are you, are you actually seeing um, like an ethics officer to oversee such projects as well? Uh, I know we have, uh, yeah, we've worked with organisations that have that uh, that function and I can see it uh, becoming uh, a, a, you know, a, a bigger part of delivery as as more as AI gets built into more services. David Coles, really interesting to talk to you today. Where can our listeners follow you on social media? 
Oh, great. You can uh, find me. I'm most active on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me there. And your handle is David Coles. That's correct. And of course, you, you've also written some blogs uh, on uh, thought, thoughtworks.com as well. That's Yes, that's correct. You can uh, find our, our data and AI practice. We have a series of short blogs that, that we publish, uh, aim to publish quite frequently as well. Um, so if you, yeah, I, I can provide those links if that helps. Terrific. Thanks you very much for your time today, David. Thanks, David. Hey listeners, thank you for joining us in this round of cocktails. Please like and subscribe to check out other episodes of this podcast series. We're also available on your favorite podcast platforms, or you can simply listen in at torocloud.com where you'll find full episode transcripts and show notes. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers! Cheers!